Well, it's, uh, it's good to see you today. If you're a guest, I'm David and the pastor of the church. We're glad you're here. And uh, I know the time change may have messed you up a little bit, but uh, we're glad you were able to get up a little bit early on Sunday. Man, some of you in this group didn't make it, you can tell, because the number of empty seats. They're coming to 11 o'clock, I guess. But I hope. I hope they don't skip out altogether. But uh, we're glad you're here. And if you're a guest, you, you, you kind of come. We're in the middle of the series. Uh, we've got about seven weeks left in it. And uh, it's a series about the study of the Gospel of Mark. And it's not, it's not, we can't go through everything. It's kind of a flyover. But uh, <clears throat> you know, th- th- what the series does, and what, what we're trying to focus on, I've said this every week, but if you're a guest, this will be the first time. Mark wrote his gospel. I mean, all four of the gospel writers wrote to everybody. I mean, they're universal in, in their approach. But Mark did have Gentiles in mind. Because Gentiles were moving and coming to Christ. By about the time he wrote this, 58, 59, 60 AD, kind of in there, I mean, Gentile, Christianity's becoming Gentile. And Gentiles come from pagan backgrounds. And their understanding of God is completely different. And he wanted to provide something for them. In fact, the series is entitled Breakthrough. Because what Mark did is he provided a breakthrough for people who were trapped in bondage to sin. And his account of the story of Jesus is to experience the love of God. He most likely wrote it from Peter's perspective. He went and talked to Peter. And, and he wrote this. And these next few weeks, there's seven weeks left in the series. The very last week is I kind of going to go back and kind of review something that we covered earlier. But these next six weeks, we're in the week of the cross. It's the Passion Week. Jesus had come into the holy city on the Sunday before the cross. It's the triumphal entry. We, we didn't look at that. We're not going to, but he did it. And, and, and so what's going to happen next is just a series of confrontations with the Jewish religious leaders. Now, today, for these next two weeks, we're going to be in a kind of a two-part sermon series like you did the last two weeks. But it's entitled Breaking the Power of the Religious Leaders. Part one, we'll have a part two. But understand, he's breaking the power. He's dealing with the religious leaders. And we're going to be in Mark chapter one, uh, to uh, chapter 11 today looking at it. And here's the thing. This is, this is the question. I mean, this, this is the thing. And the question I'm about to ask is true not only back then, but it's true right now today. Did Jesus come from God? I mean, did he? That's what we're going to attempt to answer. Did Jesus come from God? Because if he came from God, then he's the one. I mean, if he actually came from God, he is it, and everything is about Jesus. And if he didn't come from God, you and I are wasting our time right now. It's a total waste. So we need to understand that. So we're going to, we're going to begin, um, start this message off talking about the unavoidable conflict. Because there was a conflict that Jesus had. That was unavoidable. We have seen it throughout the Gospel of Mark with the Jewish religious leaders. And one of the reasons, you know, coming to the Gospel of Mark, you know, prayerfully I had to seek how did the Lord want me to approach it. And so I took a path, I took a way. And, and in order to get to the cross, I really wanted you to understand the elements and the factors that really put him at the cross. And part of it was his struggle with the Jewish religious leaders. And the struggle with them was about authority. Who has authority? Who speaks for God? Because in our terms, in terms of faith, authority means this. Who comes from God? Who speaks from God? Now, in, in the Jewish world, and we're going to see this really today, there, there, were, there were groups of people, clusters of men, who had the authority. Now, we're used to talking in terms of, if, if you've come to church much in your life, you've heard of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and maybe you've heard of like the Essenes and the Herodians and all that. These were, these were kind of groups that affiliated but these weren't necessarily positional groups. We're going to talk about people who had positional authority. And uh, the idea of authority is the right to rule. That, that the, the who has the right, the inherent right, to make decisions. 
And there were really several groups, but three groups of people in particular. We're going to see them today in Jewish life. One was the chief priest. There was a whole group of priests. These were the chief priests. These were the main guys associated with the temple. They traced their authority all the way back to Levi. Because they come, you know, they, the Aaronic priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, the priest, they go back to that. They had a biblical and hereditary right to be authorities. It was theirs by birth. The other group we'll see, one of the other groups is called the scribes. You've already encountered the scribes. They were the experts in the law, not just the written law of the Old Testament. But the oral law, the thousands of rules and regulations they created, and we see Christ battling them, especially over the Sabbath, of all these rules and regulations they made up, and they interpreted, and they said you had to keep these rules to be right with God. Their authority came from their knowledge, their knowledge of the tradition. And the third group of the elders, these kind of the older guys, these, these were guys who would have come and been placed there. They would have been rabbis. They would have been maybe other teachers of the law. They would have been people of great respect who pastored and ministered to the people. And they were put in that position. They had positional authority. So you have the elders, you have the chief priests, you're going to have the scribes. Jesus' conflict is with these guys over authority. And it really pertains in many ways to the temple. Jewish Religion, the religious system and everything ultimately came down to the temple. The temple was the place where the Jews' religion mattered because that was the place of the sacrifice. And you had to have the sacrifices in Jewish life to have their religion. When there was no more temple, there's no more sacrifice. It's over. It's that important. The temple was the place where they met God. Now, to, to understand the temple, there have been several temples. The first temple was Solomon's. It was destroyed in 587 by the Babylonians. Then they kind of built another smaller version in 515. It wasn't much to look at. But when Herod came to power, the same Herod that wanted to kill Jesus, he rebuilt the whole temple area. He started in 20 BC. He didn't, it didn't finish. He was long dead. He was dead and in hell for a long time before it was finished, put it that way. He didn't finish until about 64 AD. I mean, and this was a massive structure. The, the, the land that the temple was on, the temple area proper, 35 acres. I mean, that's twice the amount of land we have at this site. In fact, you, you go kind of to North Rise, and then you go down to, you know, Sonoma Ranch and Cross Creek, and you go past us all the way down to the state police office down there. Some of you are very familiar with that place. You've been there numerous times, I'm sure. And you square that off. That's about how big it was. And the buildings, the buildings were over 200,000 square feet. Take 11 of our buildings I mean, then you're getting it. I mean, she's massive. And, the, and, and the, the land proper, the outer court is called, was the place called the court of the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles could come to that place. The Gentiles, and God's, God's way was for the Gentiles to have access to worship. But they could come into the court of the Gentiles, but they couldn't go inside the temple proper that you put to death. You go in the next court, it was the court where the women could go. Beyond that, the Israelite people, then the priest and the Holy of Holies. And the holiest place was where they believed, you know, they met God. It's obviously, God didn't live there, but they met God. And once a year, this great sacrifice, I mean, this was it. This was a massive place. In Mark 13, Jesus and, and the disciples are walking out. This is a couple of days after today's event. Or the next day, actually, Wednesday. Um, and uh, or Tuesday, and they, uh, they're going out, and the disciple says, look at all the masks. Look how beautiful the temple is. It's gorgeous. It's unbelievable. And Jesus said, yeah, but it won't be too long until all these stones will fall to the ground. The temple will be destroyed. 
they were shocked. And he took them out. And, and in Mark 13 and Matthew 24, he taught them. He says, because they're going to reject me, God will reject them, and the temple will be no more. Two years after the temple was finished, in 64 AD, more or less, in 66 AD, the Jews began to revolt against Rome. And in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple. And when they destroyed the temple, there was no more Jewish faith per se. The ability to exercise their religion was over. And we understand it's because they had rejected Jesus. See, Jesus had come. He said not to do away with the Old Testament. He said, I didn't come to do away with the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill it. He was the fulfillment of everything that God had promised. Remember, we talked about the Old Testament being a book of promise, a new fulfillment. He fulfilled it. There was no more Jewish sacrificial system needed. The book of Hebrews says that. If there's still the opportunity for the Jews to come to God through their sacrificial system, the book of Hebrews is a lie and a fraud. I mean, it's over with. Jesus had done it all. This is important what we come to today. So we come to the Monday of his encounter with them. And coming to this Monday, uh, we're going to come to where he clears the temple out. You know, here we're seeing Mark 11, Matthew 21, Luke 19, John chapter 2. John actually has it chronologically, has Jesus cleaning the temple out at the beginning of his ministry. Some think, and I'm one of them, he did this twice. I think he did it twice. Some say, well, John just put it out of order, but it doesn't really matter. Here's what matters. We pick up with verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem. This is on a Monday. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. He's driving people out. But not only that, we pick up in verse 16 and it says this, and he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple area. Now you understand, to a Jew, the temple was everything. Most Jews did not live in the area of Jerusalem. And so they lived maybe in Galilee and they were poor. They would live in Egypt. They live in Rome. Wherever, once, at least once in their life, they needed to come to worship at the temple. And every year they had to pay a temple tax. But if you came to Jerusalem, you'd pay the temple tax at the temple. And so there, there's multiple types of coins back then. It's hard for us to relate in America. We have basically one, one coin system. But back then, you know, they had the Roman coins. They'd have Greek coins. They'd have local coins. The Jews had their coins. And the Jews would only let you pay for anything, the, the sacrifices of the temple tax with their coins. So they would come and they'd have to go to money changers. And the money changers would take their Roman or their Greek coins and exchange them for the, the, the temple coin, the, the Jewish coin. Now, in the process, they would take a fee. They would take a cut. They were loan sharks. That's what they were because there was no reason for them to do this, but they did. But not only that, if you traveled a great distance and you came to make a sacrifice, you weren't probably going to take many animals with you for the sacrifice. So you'd come and you'd have to buy the sacrifice there. Now, you need to understand this. If you've ever been to like a, a Six Flags or a destination, Disney World, Disneyland, where I've been to, and you go to buy a souvenir, you know the souvenirs there, they check the price way up, right? You go to Disney World to buy a T-shirt. A lot of their T-shirts are made by Hanes. A Hanes T-shirt is about eight bucks. Unless you're at Disney World. It's about 38. Somehow they put a picture of Mickey Mouse and it drives the price up 30 bucks. Goofy is not quite as much, but it's there. I mean, and so you, you, know, you understand you're getting ripped off. And that's what they would do. They would come to buy the sacrificial animals and they'd rip them off on the price. And if you brought your own from home, well, they would tell you it doesn't qualify. It's not pure enough. And they would buy it from you for a cheap price and sell you another one for an outrageous price. These guys were crooks. They were ripping them off. Not only that, but the whole 
Temple area become this huge marketplace. It's like this bizarre. Remember the Indiana Jones movie? You know, you see them when they go over there, and you know the scene where Indiana Jones shoots the guy with the whip, you know, the knives and all that, he shoots him and all that. And they're in this bizarre, this marketplace. Or are you seen in the Aladdin movie or something, or in Arabian Nights, whatever? You see these that's what's happened in the temple. And it happened in the court of the Gentiles. So they were denying the Gentiles the ability to worship. And not only that, they were using the temple area as a shortcut. They weren't supposed to do this either. So if you were over like over at the game and you realized you needed to go pay your fine state police office. And so you wanted a shortcut to what you were walking, you're not driving in because your know, car was confiscated because that's why you're going to pay the fine. You would not want to walk the whole way around. You want to cut through, right? They weren't supposed to do that. They had done all of this. Jesus comes and he's just... And, and, and his righteous anger, because they were turning the place of the Lord upside down, he drove them out. And John says he took a whip. I love that part. I so want a whip. There are times, not, not here, but my last churches, there were meetings I used to go to. I wanted a whip in my meeting. And they drove them out. And, and, and I know, and people say, well, he probably didn't drive thousands of people out of 35 acres of property. No, what he did is he went to the place where this was occurring. And he messed it all up. And you know he ticked people off, right? Verse 17. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? He appeals to Isaiah. Isaiah 56, 7. And Isaiah 56, 7 says, The temple of the Lord, the house, is for all the nations. That word nations is Gentiles. Gentiles needed to be able to come and worship God. God had always planned for the Gentiles he, to come. He took the Jews, and he made, when, when they were nothing, he took Abraham. There wasn't even any Jews, he just took Abraham. He made his descendants, his people, not to be exclusively his, but so that they would take the message of God to all the world, ultimately through Jesus. And they weren't doing that. Not only that, he says, you have made it a robber's den. This is from Jeremiah 7:11. Now, the robber's den, the idea that is, is the hangout where the thieves would meet to plan their next heist. This was, not, this was not that they were doing thievery there. The idea of robbers were an organized, systematic thing. It was the idea of a hideout. You know, I think it's safe to say this in Las Cruces. Think mafia, right? And mafia had always had a club where they went to. Always had a place where they hung out. That's the idea. This is just this, this concept. And not only that, in Jeremiah 7, after verse 11 says that, in verse 12 and following, it says that God's going to destroy the temple because of this. Jeremiah made that prophecy. Jeremiah lived to see the destruction of the temple. This is major stuff. Verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard this. And began seeking how to destroy him. They wanted to destroy Jesus. Not just kill him. Wipe everything about him off the face of the earth. That's what it means. <laughs> you can just see Peter saying, now Mark, you realize that we were followers of Jesus. And if they wanted to destroy Jesus, we understood that meant to destroy us too. That's how we took it. That's why at the cross we all fled. Because we thought we were next. For they were afraid of him. They were afraid of Jesus. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Now get this. The people loved Jesus. The religious leaders didn't. There's a disconnect. See, the people, even though they, they didn't know everything, even though they struggled, they understood Jesus was the real deal somehow. They didn't connect the dots. I get that. 
Cross hadn't occurred, and eventually most would reject him because the religious leaders did. I get that. But there was something there, and that frustrated them. So here you have this amazing scene where Jesus, by his actions, is demonstrating the illegitimacy of the authorities of their religion. They had lost sight of the ways of God. They had lost sight that God wanted people to come to him. That's why Jesus came. And they had created this unbelievably difficult, just convoluted, chaotic system that made them rich and deprived all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, from access to God. Understand this. This is true today. Jesus did not come to reform the Jewish system. He came to replace it. He never came to fix it. He never came to make it better. He abolished it. The book of Hebrews tells us he's superior to everything about the Jewish system. The Jewish, and it's all over. The sacrificial system's over. That old covenant's obsolete. It's no longer. The new has come. It's Jesus. That's why he can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And understand this. He still gets rid of systems today. How easy, how easily it happens that faith groups begin to create systems. And the system becomes more important than the faith. Listen, I, I know we have to put things in place. I know we have to have some order. We have order. We have, you know, we have a time limit to how long we're going to be in here. I got two clocks, a countdown clock, and all that stuff. Brian has time limits that he never follows, but he has time limits. I adjust for that because of my wisdom. I understand he can't do it, so I got to do it for him. And we make all those adjustments. We have, we have things in place for rules. and I got all that. That's not what I'm talking about. People put systems in place to determine whether or not people are worthy to worship God. There is no place for those systems with Jesus. He doesn't want to tinker with them. He doesn't want to adjust them. He abolishes them. And what is here and what is left is the call to Jesus to follow him. This was about, this was about authority. And it caused conflict. And they couldn't both speak for God. Which brings me to the next thing that I want to share. It's a simple question. Who speaks for God? Who, who speaks for God? Does Jesus? Does, does he get to speak for God? They left the temple on Monday. Some other things happened. They're coming back. And oh, it's going to get good. It gets better and better each time he talks to him. Verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem. I'm sure Peter was saying, I didn't want to. None of us wanted to go back. But we went back. They probably started doing everything back in the temple again. And as, as he was walking in the temple, the temple area, notice the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. This, these are the big guns. The Jewish had a ruling council of 70 men, plus the high priest made 71. They call it the Sanhedrin. This was probably a delegation from that. The Sanhedrin are the ones who condemned Jesus to death. Not all of them. There were men like uh, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, probably Gamaliel, probably others who did not do that. They were not part of that, but some of them did. These guys, these were the delegates. These were the guys coming. And they began saying to him this, by what authority are you doing these things? <laughs> Who gave you this authority to do this? In other words, you're saying, what gives you the right and who gave you permission to do this? Because understand, it wasn't them. And they believed they spoke for God. 
because they had authority because they were either a priest or a scribe or an elder that Jesus didn't have. And they didn't give Jesus authority. Where did he get it? Now, this is a trap. It's actually a blasphemy trap. Blasphemy is to slander or curse God. We dealt with that several weeks back with the scribes. And um, ultimately, this is why they, the Jewish leaders killed Jesus. They say he committed blasphemy. But here's the trap. If, they, if Jesus says, I did all the things I did, culminating in the cleansing of the temple. I mean, then he, he basically disrupted this whole, he, we might say this, he disrupted worship that day. More than that, he disrupted their whole system. I mean, the whole thing was made a mess that one day. This is the week of Passover. He disrupted and messed the whole thing up. If he... Arbitrators are God. They speak for God. And they didn't tell him he could do this. What he did went against what they said is right. If he says he did it for men, then he's also committing blasphemy. Because then he took it upon himself to determine what was going to happen in worship. Not only that, you go back to all the other things he did. It was just, they, they had Jesus. He finally did something for which they had him. That was good. They were feeling good about themselves. In verse 29, and Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. This is a counter question. This was common. This was, they probably even expected it. And you answer me, then I will tell you about what authority I do these things. So you answer the question I'm going to ask. I'll tell you why I do this. And here's the question. Of John, John the baptizer from heaven, that means God, or from men. And then he gave them a command, not a request. You answer me. Now, all four of the gospel writers talk about John the Baptist. In fact, if you, if you go to the beginning of the gospel of Mark, this is why some of the stuff, you know, it looks like we don't know why did Mark do this up there. Then this becomes important. So Jesus, I mean, Mark says, this is the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And then he says, and in Isaiah, it's written, somebody's coming to prepare the way. And he talks about John the Baptist. I mean, and John was a critical figure, figure all four of the gospel writers, Spent a lot of time really talking about John. Peter was a follower of John. And John came, and he came from the area of Galilee, Jesus' area. And he preached the message. And what he message he preached was repent. Repent. He was preparing the way. In fact, the end of, the, the end of their scriptures in Malachi says Elisha's coming. In fact, at some point, they questioned, is this guy the Elisha? And Jesus said, yeah, he's the one. He's preparing the way. He said, repent and believe. And then be baptized. Repent and be baptized. And lots of people were baptized, including some Pharisees. Not from Jerusalem, but probably from Galilee, and they were coming. But these guys had rejected him. And so Jesus submitted to the baptism of John. Not because he needed to repent, but for three reasons. One, to identify with the people. Two, it was the beginning of his ministry. And three, he was affirming the ministry of John. Now, if Jesus affirms the ministry of John, and the ministry of John is to point people to the Jesus, Jesus is affirming that John is pointing people to him. It's just this thing. So this was huge. This is a big deal. Did he have the authority of God or of men answering? And they began to reason among themselves. If we say from heaven, then he, Jesus, will say, then why didn't you believe him? <laughs> That's true. If we say from heaven, they're going to say, why didn't, why didn't you believe that that was the guy? But shall we say from men? Well, they were afraid of the people. These guys are always afraid. When are people who are followers of God ever afraid? If you're truly a leader of God, why are you ever afraid of anybody? They're afraid. Again, afraid of Jesus, afraid of the people, afraid of the shadow. 
everyone <laughs> considered John to have been a real prophet. Forget that. A prophet spoke from God. There hadn't been a prophet in over 400 years until John showed up. And the masses of people believed John was a prophet. But the Jewish religious leaders didn't. Again, they're not on the same page as the people. What do we do? Because they didn't believe he came from God. They couldn't say that because the masses, and there were people all around, they would be up in arms. If they, if they couldn't say that, they didn't think it's true. Plus, they knew that Jesus had them. They couldn't say from men because Jesus had them. <laughs> he had them. They thought they had him, and he had them. And so verse 33, answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. These are the authorities of Israel. These are the guys who are the keepers of the faith. Is John a real prophet? We don't know. And he said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And the religious leaders demonstrated through their refusal to answer a question that they were not the ones who spoke for God. Because the people who speak for God would always be able to know if someone was from God or not. And here's the thing. This is so important to get the rest of the story down. Jesus and the Jewish leaders could not both speak of God for God. They couldn't both do it. Because they had two different ways of looking at God. They couldn't both speak for God. Understand that is true today. I know it's popular to say there's so many religions out there here all the time. They can't all be wrong. There's got to be all these, all these ways to God. I even hear it from some people who call themselves Christians. Understand. Jesus said, I am the only way to God. He said it repeatedly, but especially in John 14. If he says, I'm the only way to God, he speak, and he speaks for God, no other religion is valid. No other religion can speak for God. Not Hinduism, not Islam, not Buddhism. Nothing can speak for God. If any other religion speaks for God, Jesus is a liar and a fraud. But if Jesus is the only one who speaks for God, then he is the only way. Now that leads us to three questions. Two I'll group together and then a third, which were true then and true today. First is this. By what right did Jesus have to do what he did? Who gave him the authority? This is legitimate. They had a right to know that. Jesus, by what right do you do this? Now if they had just come and said, Jesus, okay, you're doing these things. Tell us. Who gave you the authority to do it? We really, this is what they were asking, but if they were sincere, Jesus, we want to know. We're, we're interested. Where did this come from? It's legitimate to want to know why Jesus has the right to do what he did. It's, it's, it's legitimate to know who gave him the authority. And over the next few weeks, we're looking at that all the way up to the cross. But there's another question. This is what Jesus kept saying, follow me, follow me, follow me. Well, here's the other question. Does Jesus have the authority to call you to follow him? That's a pretty bold thing. Some might even say, if it's not true, it's kind of arrogant. You follow me, you follow me. Does he have the authority to do this? Because in reality, that's the question. We ask people to follow Jesus. On what authority do they follow him? Peter, I can't even see Peter at this point saying, Mark, I want you to put your pen down just for a minute because you're writing a lot of stuff, but I want you to listen to me. For the three years that I followed him till the, the cross, I thought I knew. I mean, I, I followed Jesus. I thought I knew. Mark, I, I, I didn't really know anything. I mean, yeah, he said repent and believe, and I did. And it was legit. He said deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And he goes, Mark, I, I literally followed him wherever he went. 
I saw him do thousands of miracles. I mean, I mean over thousands. I experienced them. Some of them impacted my life. I saw him, I saw him take lepers, the walking dead, touch them, cleanse them. Not once, not twice, three times, I saw him take a dead person, bring them back to life. But I didn't get it. And then we come into Jerusalem, and I'm thinking, oh, finally. He comes, and they're laying palms down and shouting, hallelujah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I'm thinking, praise God, we're going to take the city. We're going to declare him the Messiah, and all is going to be well. And then I mark that he just begins battling all the religious leaders. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And finally, they took him and they killed him. They gave him to the Romans, and they all killed him together. When I realized it was over, I fled. Because I was scared for my life because none of it made sense. And a couple of days later, it was a Sunday, John and me, the other disciples, the third day after the death, we were all together figuring out what to do. It was early in the morning, and all of a sudden some women came in. And they started saying, he's gone. The tomb is empty. Jesus is gone. And we ran and we looked, and he wasn't there. And as I was walking away along the way, I saw him. And he appeared to me, and he appeared again and again for the next 40 days. And then he ascended. And John, here's what, Mark, here's what I want you to know. I didn't understand, and I didn't get it at all. And then I did. Then I knew, then I realized. Jesus had come from God. And he had the authority to back that up. So I began the message asking simple question. Did Jesus come from God? Now, everything in the New Testament says yes. Everything that happened because of the cross says yes. But ultimately, that's the question you have to answer. And you have to decide whether you believe whether or not he came from God. And you're going to come to one or two places. Either you're going to follow the leadership of the Jewish lead, religious leaders and you're going to reject Jesus. You're going to follow them and reject Jesus. Are you going to follow Jesus like Peter and John and Paul and Mark did? And you're going to repent and believe and give your life to him. And it all really depends on how you answer the question, did Jesus come from God? Because if he came from God, you had better follow him. And I invite you today to do that, to give your life to follow Jesus right where you are, to trust him as your savior. And in a moment, some of us will be here and you can come and talk to us about giving your life to him. If you'd rather talk to a lady, women, you can talk to one of the women that'll be here. You need to come and give your life to Christ. And you need to understand, you need to give your life to Christ because he has the authority to ask you to follow him because he came from God. And Father, for you sending Jesus to us, we praise you and honor you and glorify you and we lift you up and we praise you because of Jesus. He is truly the Savior. He and only he speaks for you with absolute unquestioned authority and he calls us to follow him. So does our prayer, God, in his name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We will follow you this very moment. Amen. And amen. Would you stand? For whatever reason you might want to come or pray, you come. We'll be here.